Welcome to Shorts, a Christmas special. I'm Jen Thomas. I live in London, UK. And I'm Lizzie Falconer, and I live in Portland, Oregon. We are two long-distance friends who want to talk about what we're reading. This podcast is about how reading short stories can show the world through different perspectives. Today, we're reading A Visit from St. Nicholas, more commonly known as Twas the Night Before Christmas, you may have heard of it, Jen, that was published basically everywhere. And we'll talk about the story A Visit from St. Nicholas in the Ernest Hemingway Manor by James Thurber, published on NewYorker.com. We are here for a Christmas special. I'm sitting in front of my Christmas tree um, here in London. Yes, and I have no decorations because... (laughs) I don't know. I don't know. I wish I did. So Jen looks lovely. She's wearing a Christmas sweater and in front of her Christmas tree. And I have wrapped myself in some Christmas lights to try to get on her level of cheer. So Um, that's a lot of cheer coming. I mean, it's also 6am for you. Mm -hmm. I would do anything for this podcast, Jen. Anything. So I'm currently isolating. I'm recording this because I'm in London. I'm recording this uh, as I wait for the results of a COVID test, because that's what we do now at Christmas. <laughs> hanging in my house. Full mm. of Christmas cheer. <laughs> Merry COVID Christmas. Right. Everyone's fine. Guys, we're It's here. not our we're first here. COVID Christmas. It probably won't be our last. So we're going to make new traditions. Like this, Christmas special. Christmas special. I'm so excited to read these stories with you, Jen. We're going back to a classic. Normally on this podcast, we read contemporary short stories. Not today. These are not, not contemporary short stories. Very not contemporary. Old. Yeah. So, Twas the Night Before Christmas was published in the 1800s. And the second story that we have linked in the show notes, Twas the Night Before Christmas, we're assuming you've a lot of you will have read or know already. Um, But the second story that we've uh, linked to was published in 1927. Mm -hmm. So we are going traditional. Going back. That's what we're doing. So as you may know, on the night before Christmas, a father catches an unexpected glimpse of St. Nicholas himself. Along with his eight reindeer, Santa is here to fill the family's stocking with toys. His short visit fills the silent house with joy and wonder. Now, this is the first thing that I discovered, which I didn't know about about this story. And I'm so glad that I spent more than just a second reading it, as I do most years, and actually like did some digging into this, into this poem, because there's a big controversy over who wrote this. So for basically since it was published, it was published originally anonymously, and then it was attributed very soon after to a man named Clement Clark Moore, who um, is British, uh, British writer, and he published it in his collection um, of poems. And basically for like 150 years, everyone was like, yeah, cool, it's written by this guy. But there is a second claim by Henry Livingston Jr. um, that uh, it was actually written by them. And it's really come to a head only in the last like 10 or 15 years. The family of Henry Livingston Jr. has kind of taken their stand and said, no, it's ours. He wrote it and has kind of published, they've published things saying, you know, this is like, this is the reason, these are the reasons we think that he wrote it. 
Um, and there was, this is my favorite part of this story. There was a mock trial. In fact, there's been two mock trials in New York state trying to kind of like settle the argument between. And the last one was in 2014. This is what history. This is, this is contemporary. I take it back. What mock trials, like not real with a, a yeah. So they did it on like December in December um, they had one in 2013. They had another one in 2014. It's basically the miracle <laughs> on 34th Street. So, what? <laughs> Nothing says Christmas like the American law system. <laughs> like, what is <laughs> I mean, it's absolutely bananas. Like, there's literally... So it was presided over by an ex-Supreme Court judge, like a retired... Supreme Court judge and had like real lawyers and they were sort of presenting arguments, but I don't, it hasn't been resolved. So this, this mystery continues. Wow. I mean, you know, has anyone asked Santa though? Has anyone reached out to Mr. and Mrs. Claus for comment? Yeah. But as you mentioned, Santa and Mrs. Claus, um, we meet them in this story for the first time. We do. And we get some great description get some great description of Santa. You know, he was dressed all in fur from his head to his foot and his clothes were all tarnished with ashes and soot. A bundle of toys was flung on his back and he looked like a peddler just opening his pack. And then we get very exact descriptions of Santa physically, his eyes, how they twinkled, his dimples, how merry, which just a side note, if anyone ever called my dimples, Mary. (laughs) You have very, very merry dimples. Thank you. See how I just dropped that little compliment in there? Um, His cheeks were like roses, his nose like a cherry, his droll little mouth was drawn up like a bow, and the beard of his chin was as white as the snow. So we get this image of Santa that now we see everywhere, that is the common image of Santa. And, you know, I, I saw from the research that we did that this is where our image of Santa comes from, this poem and the description here pretty interesting. Yeah, so I think before before this poem became so popular and popularized, there were all different kind of evolutions of what Saint Nicholas um, really was, what they looked like. Um, so sort of the idea of Saint Nicholas kind of emerged, like it can be kind of traced back to um, kind of Greek myths. Um, and then there was a big kind of medieval um feast that um that kind of arose around saint nicholas um day saint's day which was at the beginning of december on the 6th um and actually it you know this kind of saint nicholas figure wasn't always like a positive jolly twinkly-eyed man though saint nicholas was kind of portrayed as someone thin and stern he might dole out kind of gifts and punishments as well um and in I don't know if you, like, I came across this and I'd completely forgotten, but in German kind of legend, this figure of St. Nicholas was accompanied by Krampus, which was a kind of demonic half-goat creature um, that gave out punishments to children, bad children. So that's where that sort of, like, naughty and nice kind of idea is kind of founded. But then in kind of Victorian times, um, Christmas became a really jolly kind of holiday, and suddenly... Santa Claus was kind of the bringer of the of the feast, and and someone who was kind of a, re, a like a reveler. Yeah, and a figure for children. Also, you know, you just wonder how he goes from being 
accompanied by Krampus, this demonic figure that you're talking about, to being welcomed into our homes. Come down the chimney. We'll leave you treats. It's so interesting how these legends and myths change. And one of my favorite lines from one of the articles that you sent me, which we'll link in the show notes, was that St. Nicholas became known for generosity, such as giving children presents and gifting dowries to young women in need. And I was like, me? (laughs) I'm a young woman in need. We are never too old for Santa Claus. And this poem obviously kind of popularized this image of of Santa Claus as kind of the plump, jolly figure, kind of wearing kind of big boots and and fur coat. Um, But one of the reasons that we are so familiar with him as a a character who wears red and white, because obviously that's not... um, that's not mentioned in this poem, is um, because of Coca-Cola's advertising campaigns. I'm, which no. Is, yeah. <laughs> what? So back, like back in the 30s, Coke put like loads of money behind, obviously, incredible advertising campaigns for, for Coke, as they still do. Holidays are coming. Totally into those lovely adverts. But um, yeah, they put him in a red coat and like he had been depicted in a red coat before, but like it was so widely used and widely spread through the Coke kind of advertising campaigns that that became like an enduring um, vision of him. I do love, love, love this poem. And I also have to share because otherwise my family would be like, what are you talking about? How did you not tell this story? So when I was little, this poem plays a key role in my life. When I was little, I was about 10 and I entered the school's like poetry reading competition. And I did this poem and I wore like a, like a, like a night cap, like a sleeping, like a night cap. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and uh, I did this poem and I won the competition so I'm <gasps> very proud but crucially it wasn't Christmas time <laughs> so, <laughs> I was just fully going for it it wasn't it wasn't Christmas time I just I think I just took it really seriously my parents took it really seriously like I remember rehearsing a lot in my living room it's still like one of those family things that comes up from time to time where I just get like thoroughly mocked and ridiculed <laughs> by my siblings and rightly so because what was As- i thinking <laughs> it was the night before christmas except not really it is may <laughs> just it's good times but that aside, did you do it without notes did you memorize yeah, it yeah you had to memorize oh, it oh my god jen perform can you still do it start from the top on the count of three <laughs> I mean, literally nothing would please me more. I'll do that and then my rendition of All I Want for Christmas is You by Mariah. <laughs> please. Now that there's a professional microphone please. set up. That's all I want. Please. That would be, um, yeah. But it's like, it's a truly magical, magical poem. And like it is. The, the meter of it kind of like pulls you along right from the start. And you are just in this world straight away we know where we are we've got you know that that the the idea that the children are kind of dreaming of visions of of sugar plums dance through their heads i mean it's absolutely beautiful and so festive and so christmasy that by like line four i am fully in the christmas mood i'm there 
yeah, there's, there's to me almost nothing more classic than this poem. We read it every year. My niece is almost 11, but we still read it to her every single year. Well, now she reads it to us. Uh, but even from the second line, not a creature was stirring, not even a mouse. The stockings were hung by the chimney with care. You just feel safe. You feel warm. It feels like you're a little kid waiting for Christmas morning. I mean, I love the magic of it. Yeah. And I the, the thing I like, I think, the most about it, and it seems kind of counterintuitive in terms of how we interpret and understand Christmas today, is that it's told from the perspective of the father. There's something wonderful in the idea that the father is looking out for Santa Claus as well, for St. Nicholas to arrive and kind of catches a glimpse. And, you know, we're, we feel like it's clandestine, right? We feel that it is it's like something he knows he shouldn't see. I love the father's perspective because, like you're saying, it seems to catch him by surprise, this magic that he's seeing. And Santa's out on the lawn calling to his reindeer. It says he appears so quickly um, and it's he's using all this language like the wild eagles and as dry leaves before the wild hurricane fly. I mean, you just get this sense of Santa appearing with his sleigh and the excitement and magic of that moment. Yeah. And then, you know, when, when St. Nicholas actually comes down the chimney and he's um, sort of the father sees him for the first time and he has the bundle of toys, there's this kind of wonderful um, perspective of just kind of observing every detail that we get from from the father. So, you know, we we get sort of beat by beat what he looks like, what he's doing, a stump of a pipe he held tight in his teeth and the smoke, it encircled his head like a wreath. He had a broad face and a round little belly that shook when he laughed. I mean, the whole thing is like minutely observed and it's it just shows this sort of openness and this fascination and this kind of feeling of of extraord of the extraordinary and of the magic and it's it's beautiful and I love that it's done through this kind of observational view viewpoint and the end is so good you know it wraps it up with him putting filling up the stockings and giving a nod to the father as if like this is a little secret between you and I. And it says, and away they all flew like the down of a thistle. But I heard him exclaim ere he drove out of sight, happy Christmas to all and to all a good night. I love it. I love it. I love it. And of course, this is why this has endured from like 1820 something to now. Like it's 200 years old and I'm like, oh, must read this on Christmas Eve. It encapsulates something that, is is timeless and festive and beautiful. And it could be now. This story could be happening now. I don't know how the author managed to leave out any details that didn't seem to age, but this feels like this could be a father in 2021. And it was written in 1823. I know. Although, do you go to sleep with a kerchief? Okay, well... <laughs> okay, so she's not a old-fashioned woman, but... Yeah, I guess I also don't know what sugar plums are. <laughs> I looked this up because I didn't know what they were either. I assumed that they were like a fruit, like a like a fruit that had been kind of preserved. But I'm mm -hmm. totally wrong. They're like a they're like a sweet, like a ha a hard candy. Hmm. Um, and the only reason that they're called sugar plums is because of their shape. They're shaped like a plum, 
they don't have any plum flavorings. Hmm. Very interesting. Yeah. Now that I say that my literary criticism is going out the window because <laughs> there are some very 1823 details. Has but aged who... <laughs> beautiful classic um, story that we all know that we all love and then we're doing something different this episode where we're also reading uh, another version called a visit from saint nicholas in the Ernest hemingway manner and we're taking a whole left turn here jen we're going from imagery sweetness visions of sugar plums warmth to a hilarious droll what is happening it's in happening. this version of the story? <laughs> so this is a story from 1927 um, by an author called James Thurber, and it was published in The New Yorker. So like at the time, it was kind of doing a contemporaneous, um, it's almost like a satire of this poem that obviously already by the 1920s was a kind of massive part of our consciousness as a yeah. society. Yeah. Also, like, what kind of Grinch do you have to be <laughs> to try to take out all the loveliness that was the night before Christmas? I love it. <laughs> I know. I know. Like, right from the beginning, so the first sentence is, it was the night before Christmas. The house was very quiet. And it's like, okay, we don't have twas. Twas is gone. It's dead. Um, the house was quiet. So we've kind of, we start to lose all of the magic of, you know, not a creature was stirring, not even a mouse. Like there's none of the lyricism. This is written in prose. So it literally, there's none of the lyricism. <laughs> and uh, the whole story, yeah, it's just kind of written in very plain uh, sort of textual language. Yeah, it is. And what's funny that I hadn't noticed about Twas the Night Before Christmas before I read A Visit from St. Nicholas was that the only person who speaks in Twas the Night Before Christmas, the original poem, is Santa Claus, is St. Nick. Not in this second version. The children are speaking, the father speaking, the mother speaking, but they don't seem to like each other very much. It's like the world's most boring conversation, which is so funny because it's a retelling of Twas the Night Before Christmas. You know, father, the children said, there was no answer. He's there, all right, they thought. Father, they said, and banged on their beds. What do you want? I asked them. We have visions of sugar plums, the children said. Go to sleep, said mama. <laughs> I love this idea that they're banging on their beds. It's like, these are just, <laughs> just like, father, bang, bang, bang. Like these kids, I mean, we have visions of sugar. But it's just, it's really funny. It's like a very funny kind of like undoing of the magic. Exactly. And, you know, it's funny that he brings in Ernest Hemingway as well, that he like names in the title in the Ernest Hemingway manner, which is kind of this style of prose that is terse and objective and not romantic. It has given it to us straight. It a little bit reminds me of Cormac McCarthy, but yeah. it's just, he's already mocking Ernest Hemingway. He's also what, mocking, though? yeah. It's like 1927. 
So Ernest Hemingway had only published like two novels and like a collection, I think maybe two collections of stories. Like Ernest Hemingway in 1927 had not, like we are decades away from The Old Man in the Sea. Like he hasn't released A Farewell to Arms yet. Like we are, are, (laughs) like this is like obviously, I just, like how bold do you have to be? It's just like, it's right there in the title in the style of Ernest Hemingway. And this guy's just like, totally ragging on Ernest Hemingway early it's in his r- career. It's so funny. Just <laughs> roasting him in The New Yorker in 1927 for his writing style. It's so funny. Yeah. I, I, and it's just, I, I love how he uses that writing style to point out the absurdity a bit of the Christmas vision and myth. It's, I, I don't know how, James Thurber does it. And I, I think it's so funny that I'd never heard of this before. Um, but it definitely, <laughs> it brings a new dimension to Twas the Night Before Christmas. For sure. And the way that they, the way that he writes that and the way that he brings those, um, those elements out is, is so clever. He writes these incredibly staccato, short, short, short sentences to kind of in order to make sure that he's he's stripping out that magic and kind of just telling things very objectively and very straightforwardly. Um, so, you know, <laughs> there's a section, the section when uh, St. Nicholas is in the house, on his back was a pack, like a peddler's pack. There were toys in it. His, ch- his cheeks and nose were red and he had dimples. His eyes twinkled. His mouth was little. <laughs> it's just like... <laughs> so good it's so cleverly kind of reconstructed and it's just so far away from the kind of the music of the poem mm-hmm. yeah I love it <laughs> the dialogue is just it cracks me up it's these little sentence descriptions like you're talking about these simple straightforward sentences and he uses that again in the dialogue so when the mother's asking about the father's vision of saint nicholas it says who is it Mama asked, some guy. I said, a little guy. (laughs) Me to every man on Tinder. (laughs) (laughs) Do you know what, actually? Because, I mean, that's funny just in and of itself. But they're actually, that's the part that's also in the, in Twas the Night Before Christmas, the Twas version of this story. Um, In that Santa is described as like a small elf in a miniature sleigh. What happened to that? Maybe it was yeah. just when like movies came around and everyone was like, this is too difficult. <laughs> We're going to have Santa as a large man with a belly, not a miniature elf. Yeah, that is really interesting. And I, I, why did Santa get bigger? These are the questions we need to know. Big questions. Because in, in all the 90s like, movies, Tim <laughs> Allen. Pies. So many men's pies. He's just grown. (laughs) Since 1820-something, he's just been eating his way around the world every year. We talked about how the end of Twas the Night Before Christmas has these beautiful, iconic lines that we all know. So happy Christmas to all and to all a good night. And of course our boy James Thurber bringing it down a level in his version with dialogue between the 
the father and the children and the father trying to convince his wife that he's seen Santa Claus and the children come into the room and say, can we see St. Nicholas when he comes? The children ask, you go to sleep. I said, you got to be asleep when he comes. You can't see him unless you're unconscious. (laughs) Father knows, mama said. I pulled the covers over my mouth. It was warm under the covers. As I went to sleep, I wondered if mama was right. It's just he doesn't even believe his own eyes, right? So he's had this experience and then he's like, repeats this line of like, well, you can't see him unless you're asleep. (laughs) And it's like, wait, what? And then you end the story. Yeah, it's so fun. It's so fun to read a Christmas classic deconstructed in this way in a different style that gives us a a whole different tone to this story. (laughs) It's, I... I really enjoyed it. And I feel like I want to keep reading and keep looking for different versions of Twas the Night Before Christmas because it's fun to think about this classic story and the ways that it can be reimagined for to mock a famous author or just to think about our ideas around Christmas. Totally agree. So read this story, read the original, depending on how sentimental or not you are feeling. That's your, uh, that's your options this time on the pod you know merry christmas happy holidays to everybody season two is coming we promise merry christmas jen happy christmas to all and And to all a good night (laughs) 